The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Now, pardon me, I've probably told this story to many of you one off. I don't think I've ever told this story to our church as a whole. So if you've heard this a half a dozen times, just, you know, check the NFL scores or something right now. Because I want to share a story with you about uh, a moment where a friend of mine said he believes it's a moment that God called me into ministry. I was a first-year teacher in McCall, Idaho, and I was a high school FIAD teacher, journalism and psychology. I coached a bunch of sports, and, and I was this fun, young teacher in this, in this high school, and I, I, was, uh, I connected well with the, with the students. I was only a couple years older than they were. I was 23. And, and, uh, and so at the end of my first-year teaching of 1999, I was asked to give the commencement address at the local graduation. And I was excited, honored. I'd never done anything like that before in my whole life. I couldn't believe that they asked me to do that. And so I, I accepted with great fear and trepidation. And uh, at that point in my life, my wife and I had connected to a great little local church. We were being discipled and we were sitting under the preached word. And our faith was coming alive and this whole new world was opening up to us. You know, faith, our, 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 our relationship with Jesus wasn't just a Sunday thing. It was all of life thing. And we both were experiencing this and really excitedly pursuing the Lord together. Well, I found myself in my office. I had a gross, dingy office in the basement uh, connected to the boys' locker room. Smelled awful, but that's where my office was. And I can remember for, for weeks and weeks sitting in there writing this, this uh, uh, commencement address I was going to have to give to the graduating class. And, and I had three points in my commencement address. One was, watch out for flying squirrels. Uh, the other one was, don't accept the barriers others place on you. And the third rule was, uh, follow your passions. These were three rules for life I was going to share with these students. The whole flying squirrels thing was simply I would, I would hide in the gymnasium uh, when kids weren't expecting it and I would leap off the bleachers and drop an elbow on their back like a professional wrestler, the, the flying squirrel move. And the whole idea was you're going to get knocked down in life and you're going to have to get back up. Uh, and we talked about the barriers thing. And then I remember I was writing my, 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 my speech and I was getting to this third point, like what is the burden or the passion or the fire that God has put in your heart and, and follow that. And I remember as I was trying to write and, and to these students, I, I began to reflect personally myself. Like, hey, Paul, what is my passion? What is my burden? What is the fire that, that, that burns within me? And to my shock, the answer to that question was, I, I want to know God and make him known. I mean, I was a former college football player. Uh, I was a head football coach at this point, a teacher, uh, newlywed, all that stuff. And yet the number one burden in my life, and it was an honest reflection of my heart, it was shocking. It was shocking that that was what was in my heart. I couldn't believe that that's how I answered that question. And so then I'm thinking, well, do I say that? I'm a public school teacher. Do I say this in the commencement address? Do I talk about my relationship with Jesus and my desire to make God known to others? And so I went to my pastor and I said, hey, I need some wisdom and some wise counsel. I'm not sure what to do here. And he said, ah, just pray about it and God will make it known to you. I didn't like that answer. So I went to another guy who was another mentor. <laughs> and I asked him, I said, hey, Todd, uh, what should I do? Am I supposed to share my faith or am I not? And he's like, hey, pray, pray and ask God to give you wisdom. I was like, I don't like that answer, man. Uh, I don't want to get fired. Uh, so I got there and I had my notes all done. I was so nervous that day, so nervous. I got up and, and uh, you think I talk fast now. You should have heard me at 23. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, I got up there and I got to that point in my notes and I remember just, I remember saying to myself, am I going to share this when I get there? Am I going to, am I going to, am I going to be a faithful witness? There's lots of pressure here. Am I going to be a faithful witness when this opportunity arises? And I got to that point in my notes and I'm, my wife was sitting over to the, to my left and I could see the superintendent and the principal sitting right there in front of me. And I'm like, all right, 
let's go for it. I'm going to stand up for Jesus. And so I wasn't trying to be preachy or braggy. I just wanted, I just remember saying that follow your passions in life. And for me, I'm discovering lately in my life, my passion is to, to know God and make him known to others. And I talked about my relationship with Jesus a little bit. I watched the superintendent's back stiffen a little bit. Uh, I watched the principal get a little bit uncomfortable, but I didn't get fired. I actually, in fact, I think that was the moment in my life where I got off the stage and I thought for the first time in my life, and I told my wife this too, I sat next to my wife afterwards and I thought, I was just, it was perplexing, and I thought, maybe I'm not supposed to be a fired teacher for the rest of my life. And that was when God started to stir in my heart a little bit, like maybe I'm supposed to be a guy who preaches the gospel. Maybe that's what God wants me to do. And I had a friend, a Christian friend, and he told me years later that he believes that was the moment God anointed me for ministry. I can tell you I was tempted to buckle. I was tempted to go lukewarm and PC, and, and I felt the pressure of, of what that might mean if I, if I speak publicly about my faith in Christ at a public school graduation, but I did it anyways. Uh, maybe it was out of ignorance, maybe it was out of bravery, I'm not sure which. Um, they had the, fire, the power to fire me on the spot, but, but I'm grateful for that moment. It's a, it's a kind of a defining moment in my life, actually. I talked to many of you throughout the week who, 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 who work in the world, who live in the world. And for many of you, see, I live in a Christian bubble. I've been in ministry for 22 or 23 years or something like that. And so I live in this little bubble where I work with Christians and I hang out with Christians almost all day long. Um, which is why I wanted, that's one of the great benefits, by the way, of being a police chaplain is it's a place where I can go and be around people that aren't followers of Jesus. And I think it's good for my soul. And it's good for me to be in that world and, and get to know people who, who, who are not following Jesus. It reminds me that there is a mission field and there are people who need to know Jesus. But I talk to many of you and, and, and you wrestle with that. Like you, you, live in a, you live in the world, but you don't, want to, you don't want to be of the world. And you're trying to figure out how to, how to be a witness for Jesus and, and not get fired and not create awkwardness with your coworkers. And I just think this is something that many believers, if you take your faith seriously, many believers try to figure out how do I be a faithful witness for Jesus and in, for many, in many cases, there, there's great pressure in those environments because you know that when you start to talk openly about your faith, that's going to require some stuff and, and there's going to be some pushback and, and you're going to have to deal with that. And so I, I know this is something that lives in the hearts and minds of a lot of Christians. And, and one of the reasons why we, 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 we opened up the book of Daniel and the reason we've decided to study this book is because as we've learned over the last two weeks, we are in fact exiles here on planet earth. We are uh, as, as followers of Jesus who've been born again and adopted into the family of God, we, we, we belong to a, the, this is not our home, our, we, we belong to a heavenly kingdom and we're living as exiles in these earthly kingdoms. And, and Daniel gives us a perspective for how it is we live faithfully in Babylon or the Babylon of today. And so Daniel is doing it then, but we can, we, can, we can look at the way in which God revealed himself and spoke and, and worked in and through Daniel's life and begin to apply it to our lives our lives as well. And so, let's pick up this week. We're going to look at another episode. We, we finished the first chapter of Daniel last week, and we're going to start chapter two this week. And, and sort of the structure of the first half of Daniel, the first six chapters, are that each chapter is kind of a standalone story in the broader narrative of Daniel and his friends living as exiles from, from Judah and Jerusalem, living in exiles in Babylon. And we get to see these six kind of mini narratives or vignettes that form the first half of the book of Daniel. We're starting chapter 2 today. As you're turning to chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 1 through 30. We're going to read through it kind of bit by bit, so you're going to want to kind of keep your Bible open on your lap today. 
you were here last week, we, we, we saw where Daniel, at the end of chapter 1, he, he, he modeled faithful resolve under pressure. He didn't have an opportunity to speak of his God yet, but he modeled faithful resolve under pressure. And last week we saw where he had God, godly favor. He showed a respectful defiance to those over him. He, 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 he pursued worldly wisdom. And ultimately we see where Daniel had some real influence on his peers. And then we're going to see the second part of that influence today as he stands before King Nebuchadnezzar. We've we got to remember the backdrop of Daniel. We can't go over this each and every week, but, but if you haven't listened to the previous two teachings in this sermon series, I would encourage you to do that because there's some important backdrop information. But, but the backdrop of Daniel is, is this, the, the, the Babylon, this powerful kingdom, over the course of a handful of years, they, they completely overthrew Judah and, and Jerusalem. And all these, all these, all these Jews were, were exiled to Babylon in modern-day Iraq. And Daniel was a prophet of God. God spoke through Daniel. And this is his experience. The first six chapters especially are his experience living as in exile in Babylon. That's the backdrop of the story. We have defined terms along the way. And, and, and two of the terms that we think is important for us to know as we study this book. And this will probably be the last week I'll, I'll, I'll re rehash this. But, but usually when we read the Bible, those who are in exile tend to be the ones that God is, is uh, they want, they're, they're the ones that are experiencing God's wrath. But in the book of Daniel, it is in fact, it's God's remnant. It's the faithful that are exiled to Babylon. And in Babylon, though it's a, it's a godless country, God sends his people to Babylon and they're meant to be there and they have a productive work to do while they're in Babylon. And so that's the backdrop. And it's a fascinating story. And as chapter 2 opens, we see the most powerful man on planet earth at that time, King Nebuchadnezzar. He is a deeply troubled man. And it's ironic. He is the leader of the world. He's got everything at his fingertips. Power and prestige and popularity and possessions. Everything, everything a person could ever want from a worldly perspective. And yet he's tortured. He can't sleep at night. And we also see Daniel, who is actually uh, one to be pitied from a worldly perspective. He's a teenager, exiled from, from his homeland, separated from his family, forced to, to go into this educational system that's, that's meant to completely change the way he thinks and turn him into a Babylonian. He's impoverished and enslaved, and yet he stands as a man who is deeply settled within himself, rooted in his faith, and not troubled. Let's start with verse 1 of chapter 2. Let's read the first three verses to begin. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. Verse 3, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. I encourage you right off the bat, if you're the kind of person that underlines or marks your Bible, to pay attention to the two times we read in the first three verses that the spirit of King Nebuchadnezzar was troubled. We read it at the end of verse 1, and we read it in the middle of verse 3. His spirit was troubled, Daniel, the author of the book, tells us, and then Nebuchadnezzar himself quotes to his magicians and his enchanters and his sorcerers, the Chaldeans, he tells them, my spirit is troubled. Now this is probably somewhere around 603 BC. 
This is the king of the greatest empire in the world. He can't sleep. He's got these troubling dreams that have led to a troubling spirit. He's unraveling. He's unnerved. He's frightened. These dreams are dominating his thoughts day and night. All the opulence, all the wealth, all the power cannot calm the troubled spirit within this man. We're going to find out later that it actually was God that was causing him to have these dreams. And it was actually God who was trying to communicate to and through Nebuchadnezzar with these dreams. God had something to say to this king. All we know is that this is probably two or three years into his reign. It says two years into his reign, but it's a couple years into the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. His soul is troubled. And he's surrounded himself with all the men who he would normally surround himself, who he thinks might be able to give him some answers. He's resorted to what he knows to work, and he's surrounding himself with these Chaldeans, these enchanters, these musicians, or these, these uh, magicians. And so if you're a note taker, I encourage you to write this down. There's four things I want you to see today. Number one, as we examine the faithful witness of Daniel, the, the faithful witness of Daniel under pressure, primarily the first thing we see is a problem. We see the problem of a troubled spirit. Good story. Every good story starts with a problem. This is the setting. The king is troubled. I read this week that, that God or the gods, if you were a first century or like a, a, a sixth century BC uh, king or just anyone from the, from the ancient Near East, uh, you believe deeply, those cultures believe deeply that God or the gods broke through the barriers of the physical world and they communicated to those of us in the physical world through, through, through they, they communicated metaphysical truths through dreams. Dreams were thought to be a communication from God. Now, that's not really the belief that we tend to have today, but in that time, dreams were a big deal. And so as we look at Nebuchadnezzar, what, what do we know about him? Well, we know that he was actually a deeply religious man. He was a, a deeply pious man. We call, we call Babylon a pagan nation, and it was, but it doesn't mean they didn't have a religion. They had a, God, they had a polytheistic religion. They believed in many gods. But, but I discovered this week as I was studying, David Helm has this in his commentary, that we actually have outside of the Bible written for us uh, some information about the coronation of King Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to what, what, what Helm writes. He says, The texts outside the Bible indicate that Nebuchadnezzar was a very religious man. In fact, the British Library houses an inscription which contains the prayer that Nebuchadnezzar prayed to Marduk, which was the main Babylonian deity, before he ascended the throne. On the day of his coronation, we actually have the prayer of Nebuchadnezzar to this false god. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar prayed to Marduk. He says, O eternal ruler, Lord of everything that exists, the king whom thou lovest and whose name thou hast mentioned, grant that his name may flourish as seems good to thee. Guide him on the right path. I am thy prince, thy favorite, a creation of thy hand. Thou didst create me, and thou hast entrusted me to rule over everything according to thy mercy, O Lord. He's praying to a false god, but it's recorded to us, thou hast bestowed on all. He says, make me love thy exalted rule. Cause the fear of thy divinity to exist in my heart. Grant me whatever may seem good to thee, since thou hast created my life. So we see that, that he's not just some godless humanist. 
He's a deeply religious man. And so for him, these dreams that he can't quite understand, there's a giant question mark concerning these dreams that have been ongoing. It is deeply troubling because he's saying, God or the gods, I, I, you're trying to communicate something to me and I can't quite figure it out. He couldn't remember it. He, he, he knows he needs to understand. So he's got insomnia and he's in, he's in a frenzy. Now we don't know exactly if Nebuchadnezzar knew the content of his dreams and was preserving that to see if the enchanters knew it or if he couldn't quite you, you have those dreams where you wake up and your soul is troubled but you can't quite remember what it was you dreamed about and you're trying to remember what you dreamed about as you're still struggling with trouble all we know is there was a question mark in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar terrified restless and desperate and I, as I think about that the most powerful man in the world I think about this existential crisis he must have been in. He had all the worldly possessions and he could not solve this problem. I wonder if it's a, a crisis of significance. When he realizes that all that stuff, all that gallimaufry, all that opulence, it, it, at the end of the day cannot address the ache of his soul. I remember when I was a kid, there was this cancer, lung cancer, kind of a public service announcement commercial and it said something like this and it was it was talking about lung cancer and it said when you can't breathe the only thing in the world that matters is your next breath and that always stood with me and I thought you know isn't that just true about everything like we, we we go about toiling in our lives building careers and growing families and doing the things we do good things noble things beautiful things uh, but I think Sometimes those worldly pursuits in our life can be a great distraction from us occupying our minds with the things God really wants to reveal to us. And I imagine for Nebuchadnezzar, he's, his anxiety, he's, has a, he's has trouble breathing and he, and he doesn't know what this ominous dream is about and he's got this crisis of identity confronted with the reality that even though he may be the most important man on the planet on paper, he realizes he's actually very small. And he's suffering. Look with me at verses 4 through 6. We can kind of see this mission that the king goes on to find answers. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, these are these men who are supposed to have all the answers. And here's where the book of Daniel, interestingly enough, switches to Aramaic all the way through chapter 7. O king, live forever, they say. Tell your servants the dream and we shall show you the interpretation. And the king answers and he says to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid to ruins. What a nice guy. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. And so three times, you notice like, like he's, he's got a one-track mind. Three times he says, make known to me the dream. Show me the dream. Therefore, show me the dream. He repeats himself. He's, he's losing his mind. He's not in control of his thoughts and emotion. He's got these violent and erratic threats. If you can't tell me what my dream was, and I'm not going to tell you what it was, you've got to tell me what it was. And if you can't tell me what it was, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. Awful. And then I'm going to trash your house. I'm going to destroy your wealth. And everyone, who, even when you're dead, the people who knew you are going to suffer because everything's going to be destroyed. Verse 7 picks up, and, and the request seems exceedingly unreasonable, as of, it is, but he's, he's in an unreasonable mental state. So these, these answer men say to him a second time, King, 
tell us, tell his servants the dream, and we sh- will know its interpretation. Like, king, like, what are you talking about? How are, how are we going to be able to tell you what your dream was about? Like, you need to tell us what your dream is about. And he says to them, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. Now at this time, these Chaldeans, these wise men of Babylon, these magicians and enchanters and, and the whole sort, they, 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 there was an elaborate set of books that existed at the time. We actually, we still have some in our possession. Uh, books that were filled with teachings and insights of dreams and imagery. And when they were told a dream, they would access this literature, open up the book to find ref- and find the right reference, and they would use this book to interpret dreams. And, and that's what they were used to. And I don't know how many times previously, but I'm assuming that previously the king had dreams and, and that was the protocol. They come in, tell us your dream, he tells them the dream, they open the books, they offer interpretation, and, and they move on. But this is such a troubling situation for the king. He's like, no, 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 we're not going to do it that way anymore. We're going to do it differently this time. And he's literally insane with frustration and fear. Manifesting in homicidal threats. His desperation causes him to act in desperate ways. We pick up in verse 9. He says, if you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. So you can hear the mania in his voice. Repeating himself again and again. Tell me the dream. Tell me the dream. Tell me the dream. Shut up. Tell me the dream. Just tell me the dream. You can hear it. One track mind. He needs to know this dream. I imagine how these advisors must be feeling. The most powerful man on the planet. He's threatening to dismember them, destroy their homes. And they're sitting there thinking, we can't access our books. We can't read the man's mind. We have nothing to offer. From their perspective, there's not a person on the planet who can do what the king is asking. And they say as much. Look at verse 11 and 12. They answer the king and they say, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a difficult thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And so as we are reading this story, we're 11 verses in, the problem is growing. We see a problem and there's no way to find a solution But if the problem is not solved, there's going to be mass death. It seems hopeless. Verse 12 picks up. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Now remember, Daniel and his friends, they were were studying in, in royal academy at the University of Babylon. They were studying in wisdom. And so this decree goes out in verse 13, and all the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So Daniel has nothing to do with this. He's a teenager. Him and his friends are, they're students at the university, and now suddenly, because the king has lost his mind, they're going to get killed. Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah are going to die unless something happens. Can you feel the tension? It'd be a good time for a commercial break if you're watching this on on TV. It's like, are they going to get killed? Like, what's going to happen? King is crazy. There's no answers. Daniel, the hero of the story, is going to die. What do we do? 
Pick up in verse 14. Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. You know what? We learned last week that, that Daniel was, we, the, the phrase we used was that he showed respectful defiance when he was asked to eat the king's food. He didn't burn the place down. He wasn't disrespectful. He always carried himself in a noble, honorable way. And so as you read here in verse 14, that, that Daniel replied to the, his, uh, his executioner, he replies to his executioner with prudence and discretion. Other translations say he replied with counsel and wisdom, or wisdom and tact, or wisdom and discretion. Now we think this kid was about 17 years old. Most scholars think he was about 17 years old at this point. Can you imagine responding with wisdom and tact when you're facing the man who's been empowered by the king to, to execute you? And so for the second time in the book, by verse 16, Daniel's going to be standing before Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 16. Daniel went in after talking with Arioch, and he requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. At the end of chapter 1, Daniel stood before the king, and the king found that Daniel and his friends were ten times better than all the others. He discovered that they, they were in every matter of wisdom and understanding. They were the top of the top. So here a second time, Daniel is standing before the king, and this time it's not quite so rosy. He's standing before a king who's got mania in his eyes, murder on the mind, out of his mind with worry and fear and insomnia. The king is desperate for answers. And so we see that the faithful witness under pressure begins with this problem of a troubled spirit. And so what does he do? Well, Daniel, as we would imagine, as a faithful man, after standing before the king, he picks up in verse 17, he went to his house. He's like, okay, guys, I just bought 24 hours. I just convinced the king to not kill us today. I bought 24 hours. What are we going to do? Daniel goes to the house, verse 17. He makes the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And look at verse 18. This is so important. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Again, if you are an underliner or a highlighter or a person who circles the text, seek mercy from the God of heaven. Underline that, highlight that. And as we examine Daniel's faithful witness under pressure, secondly, we see the story take this turn toward prayer. We see Daniel telling his friends to pray for God's help. That's his first pit stop. He doesn't flip out. He doesn't start problem solving. He doesn't start pouring over the literature of the day. He doesn't try to go in hiding. His first go-to is prayer. And it's to go to his peers, go to his believing brothers and to say, fellas, we're in a pickle. The only way we're going to get out of this pickle is if God intervenes. So together with me, he says, seek mercy from the God of heaven. So Daniel knew that there is a God and God is there. God is present. God is real. God is alive. And not only that, he is accessible. Daniel knew that God was accessible, that we could communicate with God, that him and his friends could pray to God, they could make their requests known to God. Now that stands in, that stands in direct contrast to the Chaldeans. Do you remember what they said of the, of the many gods of Babylon in verse 11? He said, they said, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. They, they didn't believe that 
God was accessible. But Daniel's first pit stop is to come to God in faith. He seeks understanding of the problem by going to the king and gets this 24-hour window and hits his knees, urges his friends, guys, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta beg, we gotta pound on the doors of heaven. We have to seek mercy from the God of heaven. Now, on, on one hand, the, the, the Babylonian, the Chaldeans, the, the men of wisdom were right. No human can do this. No human can look into the eyes of King Nebuchadnezzar and discern through his eyes, oh, here's what your dream is about. No one can do that. Like that's, no human being's got that, cap- that capability. And so on one hand, these wise men of Babylon were correct. But on the other hand, they wrongly said that God does not live among men. There is a God who lives among his people in whom his people can come and pray. And it's Daniel's God. And by the time the New Testament comes around, he takes on human flesh and walks among us. So Daniel is confident that God is there and that he's accessible. And man, I think about prayer in our lives as as followers of Jesus. I think about how God wants you and me to, as his children, to come to him. I look at the end of verse 17. We read that Daniel and his companions are offering up this prayer that they might not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon. I think sometimes when I read the story of Daniel, I, I, I forget that he's just a dude like me. He's just a person trying to live in faithfulness, trying to figure out how to be a, a faithful man in a difficult situation. He's not levitating above the earth. He's not special. He's a prophet of God, but he's still just a man. And at the end of the day, he's like, I don't want to be torn limb from limb. And I don't want my friends to be torn limb from limb. And I don't want all the wise men of my country to be torn limb from limb. We don't want to die. So they come to God and say, God, we don't want to die. We don't want to be torn apart. We don't want our houses reduced to rubble. And so they plea with God. You got to see the humanity of this. They're just, they're just begging God. Have you ever been in a situation where you are like, God, I don't want to die. Or God, I don't know if I can make it through this. I need you, God. You fall on your knees. I think of the foxhole prayers. There's that famous thing that there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. And I think sometimes God in his love for us, he reduces us, he takes away all of our human resources and he reduces us to a point of desperation similar to the king here, right? The king had every resource a human being on planet earth at that point could have and God takes it all away. And here's Daniel, he's got nothing. He's got no capacity to save himself. So what does he do? He hits his knees and he begins to pray. And it's been a praying season for our church. We just got done spending four weeks in the Lord's Prayer at the end of August and into the beginning part of, of September. And we got, for four weeks, we, we gathered at the end of each service and we prayed as a body. And, ah, oh, geez, I know that was uncomfortable for, for some of us because we're not used to that sort of thing. But I think as leaders, we just sense that it's, 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 we're, we're, we're in a, a moment in history where prayer and access to God, access to God is vital. I think about us as a staff, boy, just a couple of weeks ago, we were just sitting as staff, going, to, going through our staff meeting and doing the logistics of our staff meeting and talking about this and about that and this date and that calendar issue. And then we have this point in our, our staff meeting where we, we pray and, and we just begin to talk kind of honestly and vulnerably as a staff. And it turns out that each one of us was just kind of going through a tough season for whatever reason. And we just started talking vulnerably and honestly about like, yeah, like this is a hard season for just a bunch of different reasons. 
Some of us were dealing with some, just some heavy things. And, and then as we looked at our congregation and looked at the prayer requests that come in, we're like, oh man, this is a really difficult season for a lot of people at our church right now, going through some really hard things. So what do we do? We just come to God. So we've been praying as a body. We've been praying as a staff. We realize like this is, we, God is accessible. He hears our prayers when we come to him in faith and we we pound on the doors of heaven and we seek the God of mercy and we say, God, have mercy on us. Meet us in the midst of this affliction. God wants his children to come to him. And so Daniel and his friends, they pray. They seek after God. Verse 19 tells us that the, majest, uh, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Pay attention to that word reveal. That's kind of a, an idea that's laced through this chapter, the idea of God revealing what none of the wise men of Babylon can do, Daniel's God did in one night. And man, I just can't help but notice where this prayer is placed. On the email we send out each week, we ask you to consider that. If you, if you, if you get the email, we, we try to give little insights into how to think about the text critically before we preach it on a Sunday morning. And the question I had you think about this week when you read the first 30 verses of chapter 2, I said, pay attention to the... To the, the the way, the things that Daniel and his friends do before they actually stand before the king. And, and, I, and I wonder, as I was thinking about this again this morning, do you and I think often enough about the priority and the placement of prayer? You know, as a guy, I think sometimes, you know, we are fix-it guys, and sometimes when we see a problem, we just immediately go into fix-it mode. And we want to start applying solutions and wisdom and strategies to address an issue. Um, and I'm not sure if the knee-jerk response of many of us when we are encountering a difficult season is prayer. My wife is a great reminder of this. My, my, my youngest daughter, Allie, has just had this crazy season where she had to have her appendix removed. And then she went and got a physical and found that there's something wrong with her heart. And then she couldn't play basketball because she has to have her heart looked at. And then she got this, then she got this, this, uh, this she had an allergic reaction. It was like this month of just like everything that could go wrong went wrong. And my wife just very patiently is like, well, have you prayed about it? Let's pray about it. Let's pray. Should we, have you prayed about this? And it, sometimes it's like, okay, I get it, Becky. We're supposed to pray. You're more spiritual than us, but we get it. But she's right. And she's just this constant reminder in our home. It's like the, the priority in the placement of prayer is problem. Hmm, pray. So that's what we see. In the faithful witness, what Daniel models for us is when we see the problem of troubled prayer, the first pit stop is prayer for God's help. Then we get to verse 19b. We see that Daniel, after he receives this, this answer to prayer, he, he begins to pray a prayer of praise to God. Daniel blesses the God of heaven, we read in verse 19. Verse 20, Daniel answers and he says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever in whom belong wisdom and might. Daniel is praising God. He's been given revelation of this dream. He knows the content of the king's dream and he also knows the interpretation of the king's dream. He knows that he's going to be able to step in and do the thing that the king has been asking. And so God did that. God gave him that revelation. And so Daniel is blessing the name of God. And he, he says God's name is deserving of being blessed forever. And, and, and it's to God who wisdom belongs and might belongs. And as a result of God's revelation, many lives are going to be spared. And God did this thing, and he is to be praised for it. So thirdly, as we examine Daniel's faithful witness under pressure, thirdly, we see praise for God's revelation. We see a problem of a troubled spirit. We see prayer for God's help. And here in verses 19 through 23, we see praise for God's revelation. Daniel praises God for his power. Look at verse 21. 
He changes times and seasons and removes kings and sets up kings. He's saying that when he's living as an exile in a foreign land under the rule of the most powerful king on planet earth. He's, he's, he's literally living under the threat of death from King Nebuchadnezzar and the praise that Daniel offers up to the God of God and the King of Kings is that my God is so powerful, he removes kings and sets up kings. Nebuchadnezzar's nothing to him. He can wipe out his rule, his kingdom, his reign in 10, 10 minutes, 10 seconds if he wants to. In the, in the grand scheme of things, Nebuchadnezzar is nothing, but God is, is, is omnipotent and all-powerful. Verses 21 and 22, he, he, he praises God for his wisdom. He gives wisdom to the wise, Daniel prays, and, and knowledge to, the, to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Deep, hidden things are not found in the, the, the Babylonian dream tablets. The, the deep and hidden things, the true things of the world are not found in the, the curriculum of Babylon University. And we're going to see in the second half of this chapter, we're going to see the wisdom of God on display as interpretation is, as both the content and the interpretation of the dream are revealed. And then in verse 23, we see Daniel praising God for his revelation. He says to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and you have made known to me what we asked for you for you have made known to us the king's matter. So God has revealed true things to, to Daniel. God has revealed true things to us. And as we see where Daniel here, his praise in this place here, in this moment, praise is an overflow from Daniel and his friends of a heart filled with gratitude. A heart filled with gratitude because the God of mercy met them. When they, when they begged of him, he met them in that place. And so their praise now in this moment is an informed response to the activity of God in their life. Now, now it's worth making note that at this point, he still hasn't talked to Nebuchadnezzar. There was a problem that was raised in the first couple verses of the chapter. And here we are, we're through the idea of, of prayer and praise. And, and, and he's extolling God and he's lifting up God and he's giving praise to God. He still hasn't stood before the king. So we pick up here in verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and he said to this guy who was supposed to be his executioner, he says, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. And then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste. And so after, after he's made known of the problem, and after prayer, and after praise for the answer of, of prayer, Daniel then finally moves into this position of obedience, and he begins to approach the king. And as he gets ready to step in the presence of the king, he's preparing to give faithful witness under pressure when he stands in the presence of the king where he finally is going to speak truth to power. And this is our final point. As we examine Daniel's faithfulness, as we see his faithful witness under pressure, we see, we see in the story that he proclaims truth to power. He proclaims truth, the truth of who God is, to power, the most powerful man on the planet. And so there's this problem of a troubling or a troubled spirit. There's this prayer for God's help. There's this praise for God and his revelation. And now there's this opportunity. In light of all that, Daniel has now been positioned by God to proclaim truth to power. And for the third time in the first two chapters, this 
teenager who's really a nobody in the grand scheme of things. He's in exile. He's standing before the king. Ariok, in verse 25, brings Daniel before the king in haste, and he says to the king, he says, Hey, king, guess what? I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Ariok, you found nothing. Daniel found you. Stop taking credit for something you didn't do, Ariok. Couldn't pass up an opportunity to take credit. I have found among the exiles, he says, from Judah, a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. And then in contrast to the, the affirmation-seeking Ariok, who couldn't pass up an opportunity to take credit, we see the humility of Daniel on display here in verse 26 and 27. When he's asked by the king, the king declares to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Belteshazzar the king says to, to Daniel, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? In verse 26, you can just see like the desperate eyes, the, 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 the murderous mania eyes of the kings like Daniel, like for the 15th time in the chapter. Can you, can you make known to me the dream? I got, I got to know the content of this dream. I'm going crazy. Daniel, you're the answer man, right, Daniel? You're the, you're the one that can help me. And Daniel answers the king. He says, no, no wise men, no enchanters, no magicians or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. To answer you, king, no. There's not a man on planet earth. Your, your, your advisors were correct. There's not a man on earth who can do what you're asking them to do. Verse 28. But there is a God of heaven. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. I love that Daniel doesn't point to him. So, hey, God, I've got this special, or hey, hey Nebuchadnezzar, rather, I, I got this special relationship with God, and he sort of singled me out. I'm his anointed, and uh, I'm kind of a big deal. And I'm going to tell you how uh, these dreams can affect your life. No, he just, Daniel doesn't do that. He's, it's not about him. He's not elevating himself. He gives glory to God. It's humbling to see that. We're not to, Daniel's not the, 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 the hero of the story. is God, but Daniel's this faithful servant. We look at Daniel, we're like, dang. That's, 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 that's faithful witness right there. I mean, I was thinking about this as I looked at this text this week, and I was thinking about how over the course of, of the years that God has had me in ministry, how just the philosophy of ministry has shifted for me. I can remember way back in the day when I first got involved in ministry in the, in the early 2000s, uh, the church growth movement was really, really important, really big. Like a lot of churches were doing the church growth thing, the attraction, the model, doing everything they could do just to bring people and money. And, and that was like, it was, it was, that was books and conferences and seminars and movements were built on the church growth movement. And I mean, I think the heart behind that is come to faith in Christ and be saved, which is a good thing. It just got off its rails a little bit. And I can remember cutting my teeth in ministry in my 20s. And I remember reading John Maxwell's 21 Laws of Leadership, I think is what the book was called. And I'm going to slaughter this law. But essentially the law was, was this. People will buy into the leader before they buy into the organization. They'll buy into the vision of the leader before they buy into the organization or the truth the leader represents. And that, that's... Something like that was how it was worded. And I just, I twisted it up in my mind and I thought, okay. So that means the ministry needs to be about me, my charisma, my likability, my ability to cast vision, my ability to be dynamic in the pulpit. Okay, it's about me. And when people line up underneath my leadership, well, then that's how then I can point them to Jesus. Yeah, not so good. I thought it was about me. 
And when you think it's about you, you make everything about you. Your preaching becomes about you. The vision of the church becomes about you. The decisions you make become about you. And over the years, God has, in his grace, brought really godly men and women into my life who've rebuked me and who've helped me think about that philosophy and see the holes in that philosophy. And, and uh, I, I, I'm sure God has got a lot of work to do in my life still. I'm sure I'll look back on the Paul of today and, and have some, some, some uncomfortableness with some of the things I believe in this moment that God will probably correct out of me in the next 20 years, I hope. But there is a God who has revealed himself and we are to point people to him. It's not about us. It's not about a dynamic senior pastor. It's not about a magnetic personality. It's just not. And I've discovered personally my own self, when I'm the focal point and when, I, when my chief desire is to make people want to like me or to show up or to fill our seats with people, if, if the chief ethic is a big, massive church with lots of money and resources and that's what really drives me, uh, I'm making decisions that will lead to that and not lead to the glory of God. I'm led to make decisions that will benefit and protect me and my vision. However, when I realize it's not about me, like Daniel here, who steps in before the king and doesn't bring credit to himself, he's like, I can't do any of this, king. But the God of heaven can. Let me tell you about him. Then Daniel's not worried about his flesh. He's, when, he, when, he's, when, his, when his own desire is not leading the day, he's able to stand and faithfully give witness to the God whom he represents. I know I've shared with you in the past, there's an old German philosopher who said, our job as Christians is to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. I like that. When, when, when you and I are called upon by God to speak truth to power, whatever that looks like, it might be speaking truth to a family member. It might be speaking truth to a boss. It might be sharing Christ with someone on an airplane. It might be speaking truth to a, a friend group. I, when God calls us to speak truth, to proclaim the truth, I think one of the things, I, at least for me, this might not be you, one of the things I, 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 I worry about or one of the, the hang-ups or the challenges is rejection. What if my friend hates me? What if, they, what, if they, what if this changes our friendship forever and they want nothing to do with me and they reject me and they reject my message? And I, don't know if I, can, I, can, I don't know if I can deal with that. It's like, well, it's not about you. <laughs> it's not about you. And then there's the whole reputation piece. Like, ugh. Man, if I come out as a Bible basher at my work, I, that, that's going to really hinder my ability to do this or that. And I look back to Daniel, man. Since he never made this about himself, he was able to stand in the presence of the king and unequivocally proclaim truth to power because he knew it was about his God and it wasn't about him. Daniel knew his greatest contribution in that situation was the God he represented and so he spoke on behalf of that God. And this was, a, again, a young man, probably in his teenager, standing before the most powerful man on the planet, the man who had his life in his hands, and Daniel, empowered by God, with a big, massive view of God and not a very big view of self, Daniel stands before this king and boldly, humbly, with tact and wisdom, standing before the greatest king on earth, bravely proclaims truth to power. Awesome. I mean, there's lots of stories like this in the scripture, right? There's Joseph, who, oddly enough, through interpretation of dreams, stands in the presence of the most powerful man in the world at that time, Pharaoh of Egypt, proclaims truth to power. There's David, this shepherd boy, when the armies of Israel are shaken in their armor and the armies of, of the Philistines, led by 
Goliath or the, the, the manifestation of power, this boy with a sling and a couple of stones steps out into a valley and proclaims truth to power. It wasn't about Daniel. It was about the God that Daniel served. It wasn't about Joseph. It was about the God that Joseph served. It wasn't about David. It was about the God that David served. I think of Stephen, this, this deacon in the book of Acts who's being stoned to death and he stands up there with, with a, a mob of angry men with stones in their hands ready to kill him and they end up killing him. And what does he do in those final moments before he dies? He proclaims truth to power. He holds up Jesus. He holds up the gospel. They throw rocks at him till he's dead. The heavens open up and Stephen looks up and Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father and welcomes Stephen into heaven. I think of Paul at the end of Acts, standing before Festus and Agrippa. These men who have the power to kill him. He proclaims truth to power. He persuades them, in fact. And so then we have these last few verses. Let's just look at these last few verses, verses 20, 27, 28, 29, and 30. Let's read again how, how our text ends today. Daniel answered the king, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king is asking, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries, the God of heaven, made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because any wisdom that I have more than any more than all of you living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Can you imagine this moment for Nebuchadnezzar? Just the irony of this moment, the most powerful man in the world, desperately hanging on the words of a 17-year-old boy. That, that contrast is meant to be seen by us as readers. I mean, here's Daniel capturing well the, the contrast between himself and Nebuchadnezzar. All-powerful Nebuchadnezzar, powerless Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, named after the, the Babylonian god Nebu, the god of wisdom, has no wisdom at all. And then here's Daniel, who's this young boy, named after the god who is his judge, having all the wisdom. But it's not Daniel, it's Daniel's god. We see a troubled king who meets a man of understanding. We see, we see fame meeting obscurity. And there's just truth and wisdom in the process of Daniel, isn't there? I love this four-part process. I'm not saying it's prescriptive and it always has to be this way, but this, this description of how, these, how this story unfolded, at least halfway through the story, the, the, we'll get the second half next week. But I love, this, I love the way they, the, this unfolds. There's a problem that is made known. So then there's this, this petition, this prayer to God, this falling on their knees and begging the God of mercy. There's, there's then praise to God for his revelation and then the conviction to step into that moment and proclaim truth in that moment. Boy, I think about you and me. I think about the situations we may find ourselves in. The problems we allow our, that we find ourselves in, in life. The, 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 the problems our friends and our coworkers and our companies encounter. And, and the opportunity we have in those moments to pray. To ask God for his help. For how we might be used by him in those moments. To, to praise God when he reveals his, himself to us. To proclaim truth to power. God speaks his truth to the world through faithful witnesses. 
That's what we talk about what it means to live as an exile here on planet Earth. God uses men and women like you and me to speak his truth to the world through people who are faithful witnesses like you and me. I read this week, one author says, the world needs people who understand and can clearly state God's word in the world. And so wherever God has placed you, remember this, he has a word to be made known and he has placed you in a line of work where others need to hear your voice. And I know it doesn't sound very loving, but oftentimes when I'm, when I'm in a relationship with someone who's proud or who rejects the gospel, who doesn't want to talk about things of God, who are as stiff-armed those ideas and they're, they're living their life and, and they're not interested in having spiritual conversations, I'm not going to be a tyrant. I'm not going to disrespect them and come force it down their throat. That's not being wisdom, wise and tactful. That's not, that's not being respectful. And so if I'm in a relationship with someone, I, I cautiously and humbly pray that God will introduce a problem into their life. That God will bring them to their knees in love. Not because he's a meanie, but because he loves them. That God will systematically strip them of all those things they held on to or they hold on to that gives them security and worldly wisdom and safety and insight. And that God will just slowly take it all away. And that I recognize my job, your job, our job as exiles, as witnesses, as men and women who have been placed in these situations to proclaim truth, our job is to be faithful, is to love them, is, as some people say, to be an aroma of Christ in their lives, to be a parable of Jesus, to be present, consistent, and to be praying for them constantly, asking God to bring opportunities for open doors. I, I, I look at the book of Daniel, and I see Daniel being a good student in Royal Academy in chapter 1. I see Daniel engaging in the content and, and just killing it at school. And, and when he stands by Nebuchadnezzar at the end of chapter 1, he, he's 10 times better than all the others. At the end of chapter 1, Daniel has not said a single word about his God to, to Nebuchadnezzar. But i got to believe the heart of Nebuchadnezzar was conditioned to see this, this is an this is a, this is a incredible young man. He's 10 times better than all the others. Could it be that the witness of Daniel began long before he began to speak the name of God? Could it be that the witness of Daniel was about living faithfully and, and loving well and, and, and standing up for the truth of God in humble and, and, and obedient ways? Could it be that God has placed you and me in situations where as we love the people in our world who don't know the Lord, as we pray for God to, to open up opportunities, as we pray for God to, to lovingly break them of their self-will so that we can step in and they look to you and they're like, listen, man, all I know is you have loved me. I'm not, sure if I, I'm not sure what I think about your God right now. I'm not sure what I think about you, you, the, the, this Jesus. But I do know one thing. I do know that you have loved me. You've been honest with me. I do know that you've walked with me through life. I see you worship your God and walk with your God. And it's beautiful and attractive and alluring. And now I've been stripped of everything. I actually want to hear what you have to say about God. I want to hear what you have to say about the truth. Could it be that our witness isn't just the words we say. It's also the way we live. Can you imagine... An army of humble, wise, courageous, loving, faithful witnesses being released into our community week in and week out as the doors of the church spill open on a Sunday morning. Men and women who walk and live and minister much like Daniel, not about me, it's about the God I serve. But I'm going to be salt and light. I'm going to be the aroma of Christ. I'm going to be a parable of Jesus wherever I'm, spent, wherever I'm sent. I read one author who made this observation. And then we'll have the Lord's Supper here in a sec. We are to speak up and speak out without fear. God took 
a conquered Hebrew prisoner of war and stood him confidently before the ruler of his own execution. The ruler and his own execution. This is a foretaste of what Jesus would later do for us, except that he not only faced but endured execution. So God can certainly enable you and me as followers of Jesus to to stare down death with poison purpose. We really have nothing to fear. The person who trusts in God fears no bad news and so will boldly proclaim God's good news and Daniel was such a man. And in our day, those of us who know the person, the person and work of Jesus, those of us who know the person that God has made flesh, we can and we must be such men and women as well. So here in a minute, we're going to come to the table and we're reminded of this good news. Those, those Chaldeans, they said in verse 11 that no one can show the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. How interesting that our God's dwelling became in the flesh. Our God became flesh and dwelt among us in his son. And today as we come to the Lord's Supper, we are reminding ourselves of the very act, the very thing that purchased our souls, that saves and redeems us, the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord on the cross where he bore our sin, where he overcame sin and death, where he conquered death and now invites us into new life. And as we come to the table here in a few minutes, we are remembering that as the centerpiece of our worship and the centerpiece of our message. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we're thankful. We're thankful for this truth this morning. We're thankful for this wisdom that we see lived out in Daniel's life and in the life of his friends for how it is they lived in a difficult and how they responded in a difficult, seemingly impossible situation. A problem that seemed overwhelming. I'm grateful for their example of prayer as they turned their face to you and asked for you, the God of mercy, to give help. God, I'm thankful for the way you answered and revealed yourself and for the praise that we see that speaks of your power and your wisdom. And God, I pray this morning as we prepare our hearts and minds to to come to the Lord's table. God, I pray that as we consider all that we've sat under this morning, God, I pray that As we come up to the table this morning, God, we would do so as a a statement of, of genuine faith in your son and in his broken body and shed blood on our behalf. I pray that we would do so as an act of worship as we come forward this morning, God. I pray that we'd do so as the family of God gathered around the table together. God, I pray that you would be glorified and honored this morning as we do so. We pray these things in Jesus' name.